Hello, welcome to It's Friday, your Mail Plus guide to the best of what's happening in the world of arts and entertainment. My name's Jim White, and this week we're heading back in time to India in the 1950s in the long-awaited television adaptation of Vikram Seth's doorstop novel, A Suitable Boy. You will marry a boy I choose. I don't think I ever want to get married. India's a free country now. Plus, we'll be chatting with the brilliant Val McDermott, who tells us we're living in far more than simply a golden age of crime writing. I think we're beyond golden. I think we're a platinum age. Uh, you know, we left the golden age uh, in the dust. First, though, to shine a light on the best of the week's entertainment, I'm joined by the Daily Mail's movie critic Brian Viner, the Mail's television writer Claudia Connell, and the Mail's music critic Adrian Thrills. So, Adrian, um, has it been a big uh, time for uh, new releases? Yes, Jim. I think over the last uh, couple of weeks, certainly, there's a sense that the, the major record companies are clicking back into top gear. I think we've had four major albums in the last two weeks. Last week, we had Ellie Goulding's hefty two-part comeback, um, like a double album of sorts, uh, although more, more kind of like an album and a half. But, um, and then we had a new album from the American band, The, the Chicks, formerly The Dixie Chicks. Um, we had a really good new album by Leanne Le Havis, um, a kind of Prince protege, even though she comes from South London, whose third album is, is really good. And we've got a new solo album this week from Ronan Keating, 20 years after his solo debut. He describes it as a greatest hits of new music, a collection of new songs with three of his old hits bolted onto the end. Um, he's kind of redone Life is a Roller Coaster and When You Say Nothing at All. Um, the new material, it's, it's a bit kind of mawkish and sentimental. It's kind of classic uh, Ronan balladry, really. There's a really good one with Robbie Williams called The Big Goodbye. Uh, Nina Nesbitt does quite a nice one with him. Uh, there's one with Shania Twain where she says she'll love him even after all his hair falls out, which is a pretty unappetizing thought. But um, And there's also one we're going to hear now, which is a duet with uh, Emily Sandé, which I think gives you an idea of the, uh, of kind, of the kind of album that it is. Claudia, I've always had you down as a big boy zone fan. Ronan Keating must be, this must be, you must have the bunting out for this album. <laughs> I will not be rushing to download this. I, um, I, I interviewed Ronan back in his early days when he was in Boyzone um, and they were they were always a, a bit sort of sniffy about the fact that they were basically a poor man's take that and um, he was such a a miserable so-and-so during the interview he spent the whole interview sitting three quarters on to me refusing to look at me giving monosyllabic answers I think he was trying to be a bit rock and roll but it, it just didn't really work um, he just kept going on about how hungry he was the whole time and I remember thinking oh for god's sake it's a half an hour interview you're not going to die it was just no it was yeah he, he's on my list I'm not a fan no Jim <laughs> Brian who's on your list of the worst interviewees you've had? <laughs> Oh, Lord. Um, there have been so many. Glenda Jackson was an absolute nightmare. She, it was just after she'd become an MP. Uh, and I went to the House of Commons to interview her about her change of career and asked her what I thought was a very valid question of how her theatrical training was going to help her stand up and deliver a speech in the House of Commons. And she could not have 
barked at me more loudly and aggressively. She was like a, oh, like a, like an attack dog. It was, it was terrible. And I shrank into my chair. It was, I was quite a young journalist at the time, and um, I'm amazed that I didn't give up the career there and then. Actually, it was ter- <laughs> terrifying. Adrian, Claudius, absolutely lacerated. Poor old Ronan Keating. Have you had any rock and roll interview moments? Uh, quite a few over the years. I see one uh, one uh, individual who I've always found quite a tricky customer is Michael Stipe of REM, who he's quite well known for. Uh, he, he has this kind of quite annoying habit of picking your questions to pieces and, and asking you. I mean, he's a very bright guy, and the interviews are kind of quite a challenge. But he he'll always ask you, "Why are you asking me such a stupid question?" So uh, in the end, I, I did an interview and I decided I'm going to ask him the dumbest question I can for a kind of artist of his mighty caliber. And I asked him, "Would he ever appear on the X Factor?" and he's practically he practically exploded in indignant rage but um yeah so claudia let's take our minds off ronan keating what's coming up on telly that's worth watching well on sunday night there's a, a new drama a suitable boy this has been adapted from the the vikram seth novel which i think when it, it came out in about 1994 it was um one of the, the longest novels ever written i mean th- thank goodness that this is not one of the longest series ever running this is only six parts um it, it's a real groundbreaking drama because it's the first bbc one to feature no white characters at all so it's um it's set in india and all of the actors are indian and for some of them actually it, it's the first their first ever run role um i've I've watched the the first episode as the title suggests it's about the key focus is on marriage um particularly in relation to letter who's the heroine of the story and her mother's determination for her to marry well but um what the mother doesn't know is that she's secretly dating um she's in hindu and she's secretly dating a muslim boy but it it looks really beautiful on screen really sort of vibrant and colorful and it was adapted for the screen by andrew davis who's probably best known for that classic pride and prejudice your sister, my brother. I'm supposed to be next. Who is he, this boy you have been seen with? We should follow our own path. Nobody ever meant anything to me till I met you. His obsession with that woman. Have you no shame at all? Uh, I've never read the book. I, I use my copy to keep the door open. Um, but is it is it worth it? Is the plot there? Do you think it's worth sticking to? Thirteen hundred pages that book was. Yes, yeah. This this is well. This is six parts. I'd say the first the first episode is a little bit slow to get going. So I hope people do stick with it because this was this drama was something like three years in the making uh, for the BBC. So I, I hope it's a hit for them. As I say, it does it does look really beautiful. And the two young leads who are very you know quite newcomers are are really sort of quite charming to watch and it's a kind of uh, it's india set just after partition isn't it it's 1947 so it's a kind of it's not the modern india of bangalore's high tech is it no 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 at all it it focuses on on sort of on family life and and sort of political unrest and i think it's it's 1951 that it's it's set Brian, you don't um, strike me uh, as uh, a fan of the costume drama, or have I read that wrong? (laughs) I think you've read that wrong, actually, Jim. I'm certainly a fan of Andrew Davis, it has to be said, and we were talking before about good and bad interviews. He's, I don't know if if my colleagues have interviewed him ever, but he's a wonderful interviewer because he's so kind of gossipy and indiscreet and mischievous. Uh, I've I've interviewed him a few times, so he's great. Um, But no, I love costume dramas. 
Uh, and have you got a costume drama in the, in the movies this week for us? Sort of. Not exactly, no. It's, it's how, how to Build a Girl, which is available exclusively on Amazon Prime Video. And it's the, it's the novel written by Caitlin Moran, the journalist, uh, I think in 2014, about growing up on a Wolverhampton council estate and becoming, uh, becoming a music journalist. Her, her character... Uh, which in, in the film and the book is called Johanna Morrigan, is played by Beanie Feldstein, a curious choice because she's, she's well, not only is she 27 and playing a 16-year-old, but she's also very much from California and very much not from the black country. Um, but um, she apparently worked really hard on her dialect to the extent that she, she worked in a Wolverhampton gift shop for two weeks without anybody knowing who she was to get the accent right. And you can judge for yourselves whether she, whether she succeeds. John, Dean and me, this is Dolly Wilde. All right, Duchess, pleasure to meet you. Shall we uh, brutalise ourselves with gin? Oh, I would just like some pop, please. Do you want a cigarette? No, thank you. So, the interview. Ah, the interview. My first question is, if you had to murder someone evil, how would you do it? Oh, that is an amazing question. What's your worst song? Oh, I don't know. Which that's... is the best Beatle? Well, that's quite What would you spend a pound on in a sweet shop? Darling, have you ever done Nick an interview before? No. <laughs> What's your opinion, Brian? I, I think on the whole, I mean, I live quite close to there. I think she gets it pretty. She's, she's not a sort of Dick Van Dyke, you know, she doesn't get it hopelessly wrong. <laughs> By any means, she's, I think she's quite good. It's a, it's sort of a, it's a coming of age film, really, um, with a lot of the, the cliches of you know the school bullies and so on. She's an outsider at school. She's even something of an outsider at home because it's so everything's so chaotic, and she she sort of has this internal life. So there's one brother she's especially close to, but apart from that, her friends are mainly her heroes and role models who she's cut out and pasted on her bedroom wall and who in the film come alive so we have michael sheen playing sigmund freud and Gemma arterton as maria von trapp uh, and mel and sue as the as two of the bronte sisters and, and actually it's mel's sister koki gidroik who directs the film and I, I think she does a really nice job it's 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 a lot of fun although it tries at times to be a little too quirky uh, but it's uh, so it's not in the same league as say ladybird which Beanie Feldstein also uh, appeared in, but um, as a coming-of-age film. But she's, she's terrific in it, and I, I, I would recommend it. Uh, Adrian, uh, this is written by Catelyn Moran, who was uh, a music journalist. Is there, is there a, an Adrian Thrills life story we're about to see on the screen? Uh, I don't know if it'd be on the screen, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it would have its moments, put it like that. And Claudia, who, who was on the wall of your... Of your childhood, uh, who were your childhood heroes then? Who was on the wall of your bedroom back in those days? Not Ronan Keating, obviously. We'll no, definitely not, not Ronan Keating. I, I had my posters were um, Spandau Ballet. I went through a new romantic phase, so I had Spandau Ballet. Also, Adam Ants. I actually I got sent home from school once because I I went to school with a, I drew a stripe across my nose in Tipex, and I got sent home <laughs> to, to scrub it off. Uh, Brian, who was your biggest hero as a kid? <laughs> well, it was mainly footballers, I have to say. I'm a, as I think you're aware, Jim, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Everton FC, so it was, it was their players of the 1970s. But, but I confess that I did also, uh, I did also have, a, have a poster of Debbie Harry. I think every teenage boy either did or certainly wanted to have Debbie Harry. I think we all football. did. I think yeah, we all yeah. did have, have <laughs> Debbie Harry. Adrian, you presumably just, just had Ronan Keating as well, didn't you? 
Uh, well, alongside Ronan, there was uh, there was kind of pictures of the uh, the clash, and uh, I guess probably Debbie. I, I did actually have a Debbie Harry poster on my wall, which I was lucky enough to get signed by her and Chris Stein. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> so, uh, and was she a good interview agent? She was excellent. She gave. She was great value and quite candid and. Um, uh, you know that the you know having the pair of them together it's sometimes, it's kind of, sometimes quite helps if you have uh, if you have two people who kind of had a good relationship in a band you know where you can just ask a question and they kind of fire off each other and you, you get a good interview that way uh, but uh, Debbie was great and uh, she still is great uh, well we know what you've got to do uh, Adrian get Noel and Liam Gallagher in the same room um, thanks everybody Val McDermott has the legitimate claim to be Britain's most loved crime writer, and it's not just in this country that her books have gripped and terrified with equal measure. In her career, she sold more than 16 million copies worldwide, translated into 40 languages. And Val admits success has allowed her to fulfil some of her lifelong ambitions, not least that she sings in a rock band made up of fellow authors called Fine Young Crime Writers. And she is the shirt sponsor of the football club in her hometown of Kakodi, Wraith Rovers. Her latest book, Still Life, a gripping Karen Piri detective yarn, is published on the 20th of August. And I'm delighted to say she joins me now from her home in Edinburgh. Uh, Val, without giving too much away about the plot, what's Still Life all about? There's two stories that kind of loop around each other. And I suppose at the heart of it is identity uh, and uh, fraud in the art world. Interesting. Uh, you're uh, renowned for getting things right. Did you have to become an art fraudster? <laughs> no, but I did have to read quite a bit about it. And I spoke to friends who are artists uh, about various aspects of the book. Uh, so that was very helpful. Luckily, living in a city like Edinburgh, uh, there are people from all walks of creativity around the place. And because Edinburgh really is just a big village, you're always bumping into people who are potentially quite useful sources of information. Um, now, how, how many novels have you written with uh, Karen Perry uh, at the centre of them? The, uh, this is the sixth Karen Perry. And, and has your relationship with her changed across those six novels? Um, well, I've developed the character more. I mean, there are things that uh, I know about Karen now that I didn't know to begin with because I didn't need to know them. Uh, I think when you start with a series character, there are certain elements you start with as a given. Uh, but the more you write about them, uh, what you write is always conditioned by what you've done already. So you're, you're constrained by the gifts you've given them and the, the flaws you've given them. But within that, you start to see other possibilities that you can take them in different directions. And in the process of that, you have to work out what they're capable of and where they're going to have to turn to someone else for help. And those are things that, as I say, because you write a series in every book, you move a little bit further along your understanding of what your character is capable of. It's not that they surprise you in the sense of um, they sort of go off and do their own thing. Everything that happens is conditioned by your own experience of the world and your own experience of them. But it's about the exploration of what's possible within where you started from. And, and do you like her? I do like her, yeah. I think it should be you know, good fun to go out on a Friday night with <laughs> for a curry and a few beers or, or a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning. You were one of the founders of the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival, which yes. should have been on around now, shouldn't it? It has become a huge thing. Crime novelists from around the world, uh, all the big names go there, and the crowds flock in for it. I mean, would you say we are living in a golden age of crime writing? I think we're beyond golden. I think we're a platinum age. Uh, you know, we left the golden age uh, in the dust because the golden age 
however excellent it was in its ways, uh, was quite limited in terms of the form and in terms of the, the, the kind of strata of society that wrote about. Contemporary crime fiction has a much wider reach, a much wider scope. There's nothing that's off limits now. So there's different forms of the novel and there's different styles of the novel. But people set their novels in all sorts of different worlds, different environments, different countries, different strata of society. So I think one of the great things about contemporary crime fiction is that whatever you're interested in, whatever kind of book you're drawn to, whatever kind of world you want to inhabit, you will find it in this in the genre. When you get together at, at a crime writing festival like that, are you a competitive bunch? Do you look at John Grisham and think, I'm going to do better than you next time? I'm going to sell more than him? I don't think we're like that. No, I think we're more like, I'm going to do better than I did last time. I think the, the crime community, I think because for so long we were dismissed as being, you know, second class citizens, we kind of formed a barricade against the outside world and that involved a lot of camaraderie. And the other thing is that most of us uh, that I know who, who write crime fiction came to the genre because they love reading it. We come as fans. And so when you go to a festival, the chances are you're going to meet somebody whose work you've been reading over the years, whose work you admire. So you, as well as having the chance to be sociable with readers and publishers and editors, you have the chance to be sociable with people that you've, you've admired from afar. That's a great moment when you, you meet an, an author that, Whose, whose work has been inspirational to you uh, and uh, they say something nice to you, you know, <laughs> or, or challenging. I remember the first time I met Ruth Rendell, um, I, I, was, I was completely bowled over. I was a real fangirl. It was early on in my career and I did the, I think you're amazing. I think you're a wonderful writer. You've so inspired me. I've taken so much, so much inspiration from your work. I think you're fabulous. And then what do you say after that? Um, so I was sort of standing there thinking, what shall I say, what shall I say? And, and I said, I suppose when you've written as many books as you have, it gets easier. And she looked at me in that withering way that Ruth Rendell had and said, no, dear, it gets harder. <laughs> and I didn't really understand that at the time, but I certainly do now. If you have any ambition as a writer, it gets harder to push yourself up the next step on the stair. Harder in the sense of what you were number one bestseller with your last book and what happens if this becomes number two or is it about the detail about the plot that you, you've got to get better all the time? I'm trying to write a better book than I did last time. Um, I, to be honest, I get less excited about the numbers and the charts than my publishers do. Uh, everybody's delighted when we get to number one, but you know, I'm much more concerned about writing a book that my readers are going to care as passionately about as it's possible to care about a book. So for me, that's the challenge, is, is always to, to write something that's going to excite the readers, that will have people going, can't believe the book I've just finished, or you've got to read this new book. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying all the time to write a book that's, that's, that's better, or at least different from anything I've done before. And that's, that's difficult, because, you know, somebody, I remember talking about, someone talking about this and saying it's a bit like learning to drive. You know, the first time you sit behind the wheel, you look, You've got the pedals, you've got the gears, you've got the mirrors, you've got the steering. You think, I'm never going to be able to master this. I'll never get all this going at the same time. And then eventually, after a couple of weeks or so, it, it's almost second nature. You can drive in the basic sort of way. But to go from that to being an advanced driver is a much more difficult step. To go from being an advanced driver to being a Formula One race driver is a hugely difficult step. So it's kind of like that. You get the, you get the basic skills down. And the basic skills will take you a long way. Uh, but f for me, the challenge is trying to to move that on to do something 
different, something that pushes me, uh, something that makes me feel the challenge, I suppose, like, you know, like when you're going up a hill. <laughs> I don't know if this is a basic skill or not, but one thing I've found reading your books are they scare the living daylights out of me. I mean, uh, there's a passage in The Mermaid Singing where I, I read it and had to, uh, frankly, Val, I had to cross my legs while I was reading it. How do you do that? How do you make it so scary that I'm terrified reading it? Uh, it's interesting you should pick that particular passage. It's one that always seems to affect men much more than women. Um, <laughs> I wonder why, Val. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I, I guess what I have to do is conjure up in my head what it would look like in the first instance. I have to imagine what are the mechanics of this scene? How, is it, how does it play out in a physical sense? And then I have to imagine what that would feel like, what the experience would be like. So it's a, it's a, it's a double process. It's, it's kind of, as I say, figuring out what it looks like and then figuring out how that would feel to be at the heart of that scene. Sometimes you're writing the scene from the perspective of a person who's in the middle of that sort of situation. Sometimes you're writing it from the point of view of the person who's seeing it and being horrified or frightened or whatever. But it's about putting yourself in their shoes. And I think that exercise of, of empathy, of fellow feeling, is something that's at the heart of everything you write. It's not just the, the scenes of violence, the scenes of fear and terror, where you have to do that uh, thing of putting yourself in their shoes and understanding what they're experiencing. You have to do that with, with, with all the episodes throughout the book. So it's just as important to get it right, to make it feel authentic when you're writing about them falling in love as it is when you're writing about them being scared half to death. Do you ever hold back, for instance, Jacko Vance, a pretty horrible baddie in, in, in three of your books? Um, do you ever hold back on some of what he might get up to? Absolutely. Uh, there are things that you don't need to tell the reader. Um, and when I'm writing the dark stuff, if you like, I'm continually trying to strip it back, strip it back. How far back can I take this? and still have the effect that I'm striving for. I remember quite early on, uh, I'm talking to a clinical psychologist who I've gone to for quite a bit of, of help and advice over the years and, and saying, I've got this killer and here's what I think he's going to be doing, uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, and he listened to me and he said, yes, that's, that's, that's quite psychologically coherent, but he'd also do Y. And I thought, I'm not doing that. There's no need for that, it's gratuitous. I can achieve the effect I want to achieve with the other stuff, the other, what you're suggesting, it may well happen out there in the wild, but it's disgusting and I'm not doing that. Thank you. Thank you for not doing <laughs> that. It's been great talking to you, Val. Uh, just as a final thought, have you been productive in lockdown? Have you found it easy to write? Or, or are you someone who needs to be out there amongst people to get inspiration? I have been productive, but it's been slower than usual, I'll admit. I did write this year's book. Uh, most of it was written in lockdown, but it did, did take me a, a bit long. I found it hard to get uh, the full kind of day in, if you like, uh, to, to focus. My focus seemed to not be what it should be. But I also uh, edited a, a digital anthology in support of the Homeless World Cup called Home Fixtures. So I've been productive doing other things. And um, I've been, when I finished still life normally there's a kind of fallow period where my brain kind of free wheels tumbling through the ideas that i've got in the back of my head for the next possible books but this time my mind has just gone straight to the next idea and so that's been very much uh, at the front of my mind 
And now that uh, lockdown has relaxed slightly, we'll be able to do things like went off at the weekend to, to see a friend who lives on the other side of the country who's a, a reservoir of vital information. <laughs> so you could get back to picking brains. Absolutely. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much, Val. It's been lovely, Jim. Thank you. Sadly, that's all we have time for from It's Friday this week. My thanks to Claudia Connell, Brian Viner and Adrian Thrills for their insights and to Val McDermott for continuing to scare the living bejesus out of all of us. Join me next week for news from the entertainment frontline via Spotify, Apple or Google. Or sign up to Mail Plus for much more exclusive content at mailplus.co.uk. Until then, I'm Jim White. Thanks for your time. <laughs>